Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hello, everyone. This is a special episode, a first actually on the Indoctrination Show, a re-release of an episode that came out about 10 months ago, my interview with Katherine Oxenberg. The reason that it's being re-released this week is that Keith Ranieri, the leader of the cult Nexium that her daughter had been in, was actually just convicted on all charges last week on June 19th. 2019. He had been in prison, actually, when Catherine and I first spoke, but had not actually been convicted of anything until this past week. And Catherine was there in the courtroom when it happened. I can only imagine her emotions at the time. Keith was and is a sadistic man who orchestrated the branding and starving of women and the control of the women and the men in every way with this bizarre justification that it was for their empowerment. But justice was finally served in what I hope is a precedent-setting case, and I hope it helps people in the future get justice who have been victimized in these kinds of situations where often the law protects the cult leader and the abuser more than the victim. So here is the original episode in its entirety with the same intro that you'll hear right after this and my interview with Catherine and the one more thing before you go. And soon you'll get to hear from Catherine again when we have a moment to sit down and talk together about this very momentous time in her life and in the life of her family, and to be able to acknowledge how wonderful it feels to be able to have someone have to pay a price for what he's done. And other people were also brought up in other charges in connection with this too, so a lot of people have had to pay a price. And this is not to overlook the fact that while people feel very relieved, there is still a lot of healing to be done. And a lot of people who were harmed by him and by others in the organization who betrayed their trust. And so, of course, I wish for them some really good and important time of healing and good therapy so they can get to the other side. So... Here's my first episode with Catherine, and then you'll hear from us again, hopefully in a few weeks, with a part two. Catherine Oxenberg is an actress best known for her role as Amanda Carrington on the show Dynasty. She has a lot of other film and modeling credits to her name, and she's also the daughter of Princess Elizabeth of Yugoslavia, making Catherine a royal descendant. But today, she's talking to me as a mother. One of her lovely children, her eldest daughter, India, got caught up in the group called Nexium and moved up the ranks into a secret elite inner circle, which put her in the situation of needing to endure quite a lot of abuse and control, both physical and emotional. 
Catherine and I had consulted with each other during the last few years when she was wanting to understand what her daughter was involved in and also to go over some ideas and ways to reach her and possibly rescue her if needed. She wrote the book Captive, which was recently released, not knowing if it was going to help her daughter become free from this group, but in an effort to explain how Keith Ranieri, the head of this organization, took control of her daughter and other people's daughters and sons as well. As you probably know at this point, the law has gotten involved and Keith Ranieri is behind bars and India is home. Let's talk to Catherine as she comes back to my office with the lightness of knowing the leader has been put away, but with the heaviness of knowing that even though her daughter is home, the difficult and important work of helping India understand what happened to her and also helping her rebuild trust in the people outside the group, including her family, has just begun. Thank you, Rachel. It is lovely to be back here under far more pleasant circumstances. I was going to say that I was really hoping the last time we met <laughs> that things will have changed for you uh, in significant ways, and they certainly have in more ways than probably were even predicted at the time. So I want to be able to talk to you, of course, about the book that was just published, which is so perfectly timely. <laughs> It's really, it's incredible how miraculous all this has been, but it hasn't been just a miracle. It has been a man-made and woman-made miracle. And so the book Captive was just published. It's about Catherine Oxenberg's very empowered mission to be able to do something, to be able to be the lioness in her daughter's life, to be able to make that difference, to be able to show the world a mother's love but also show the world how people get ensnared and how that takes place, how also for far too long people can get away with it. I mean, that, that's such an interesting piece of this story, you know, why someone who is such a bad guy can be so slippery in terms of the law. And then finally, to be able to know that your daughter is free to whatever degree that means. Because as, as a mental health professional in this field, I know that sometimes the physical freedom doesn't always yet match the emotional, spiritual, all of the other kinds of psychological freedom. So I want to be able to talk to you about that. And I thank you for sending me the book and also for your lovely inscription in it. That was really beautiful. So how are you doing? Wow. Okay. So before I can answer that question, it's just remarkable for me to be sitting in this room where it all began um, approximately around April 19th of 2017, because I had just met with Bonnie, who had just told me I needed to save India, who had started to tell me the details of DOS, which was the slave group within Nexium. And I said, what do you think I should do? And she said, educate yourself. And so I reached out to the woman who was helping her, who recommended you as somebody who was local in L.A. Actually, there was not very many people who specialize in the field of cult recovery and exit counseling and support for families. So I literally made an appointment with you the following day and I came in here and I, I was naive. I really was. And you gave me profound guidance. And I talk about this in the book that you said, you know, don't be disappointed. The intervention doesn't go the way you expected if she goes back. Because very often the, the cult member needs to go back into his or her environment and make the decision for themselves. And that is the way that they maintain their dignity intact. And I wasn't going to hear anything of that. I was like, nope, she's given me the tools. 
<laughs> she knows what she's doing. I'm the mom. I know I can get through to my kid. And I hit a brick wall. And here we are over a year and several months later, and it has taken almost this long. And, you know, there's so many remarkable moments in this story from my original goal with you was how do I put together an intervention to get her out? And then I failed. And then what was my recourse moving forward from that, strategizing about what a parent can do with a, with a child who's over 18? And I hit one wall, one closed door in my face after the next. Because my first instinct beyond educating myself, which I did beyond, you know, meeting with you. And thank you for your like incredible generosity. You were available to me whenever. And there were plenty of outreach calls because I was pretty desperate. And then I reached out to law enforcement. And again, the same message. She's a consenting adult. Yeah, there are many issues that we need to address societally, but one of them is a better understanding of consent. And when is it through coercive control and undue influence that your consent has been removed from you without you even being aware of that, where you no longer have access to consent? And it is a slippery slope and it is subtle, but I think we have to. We have to have some sort of regulatory body over self-help, which is this unregulated $11 billion a year business in the United States alone. And we're allowing people to tamper with our minds who have no credentials whatsoever. And what I've learned, I've learned a lot of things, but I've learned that the human psyche is much more fragile than I understood. And it is extremely easy to alter the way somebody thinks without them being aware of it. Mm. It is a very important piece of this because, yes, when you were saying that you went to law enforcement and they were saying that she was there of her own consent. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think people look at what is tangible and what is obvious. Is she behind locked doors? They don't realize that the locks are in their mind. All of what happens there really is invisible. The grooming people to make them more susceptible, to make them more open, to have them lower defenses. The keeping of people, making them fearful of leaving, making them not trust the people on the outside. None of that can be proven or disproven. And even if you get someone on tape saying that to someone else, still law enforcement will say, well, if those people are over 18, they're choosing to take on that message or not. It is the undue influence and the coercion that is very hard to prove, but that's at the core of all of this. And the other part is you're right about the whole self-help movement. There is no regulation and we are flooded with snake oil salesmen. And so what do we do, right? We really have to be very smart consumers, psychological consumers, smart spiritual consumers, and how do we do that? That was actually one of the motivations for me to do this podcast, to know about the red flags, what signs to watch out for. The problem is that sometimes we know to watch out for them in certain situations, but not others. So there was something about being with Keith, being in ESP, his front group, 
you know, executive success program where people didn't apply maybe even the messages they had received early on about how to keep yourself safe from someone who was going to control you or abuse you to something that really seemed okay and that was very enticing. So how do you learn to apply the messages across the board, you know, and keep yourself safe? Because, yeah, law enforcement has a long way to go. But I think what the cults have as their protection is that so much of this is invisible. So I would like to say... And I believe this, and this is yet to be proven, that this case, these arrests, the fact that Keith is in jail and five more women have been arrested who are top tier in Nixium, and I believe more to come, is unprecedented in the history of this country because I think it could be the first time that somebody like a Keith Raniere was arrested before a Jonestown massacre. I think it's the first time I think this is going to be groundbreaking and possibly a landmark case. That's my prediction. My predictions have been pretty solid up until now. <laughs> yeah, they have been. And actually, even in my book, when I reread my book, I'm like, holy mackerel, I predicted that there was sex trafficking going, granted people were helping me, that there was racketeering going, all of these things that I took to the government, and now they're being charged for those very same crimes. But I think it's a very important moment. Yes, yes, incredibly important. The other thing I was going to mention too about things being hard to prove is that very often within a cultic group, people are taught to say that they are here of their own free will. If they are questioned, we're making a choice to be here. No one has told us that we have to stay. Uh, and they can also pinpoint other groups as cults, which cults liberally do. They will diagnose every other group as a cult. So it can't be that we are too, because we know what one is and it's not us. So they play with your head sort of from start to finish. I, I wanted to say also that you never know what is going to resonate with readers when you write a book. And of course, I'm reading the book and there was this story that resonated with me as a mom, where it was about you having had a meal with India and then just producing things out of your Mary Poppins purse, <laughs> one thing after the other that she needed and enzymes and a mint. But I think that says something about you in such a profound way um, that you are a caretaker and you are a nurturer and you are a mender. And here you were taken away from being able to do that to this person you loved and not being able to be there throughout her increasing confusion and pain. But now things are different, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing to realize. I love that Keith is no longer able to have his reign. <laughs> it is so fantastic. I'm so happy about that. Um, I'm curious to get your perspective on one of the henchmen, or actually one of the henchwomen, Nancy, in the group. And the reason that I ask is that sometimes people don't realize there's a hierarchy within organizations, that the leader will be up to crafting what happens, but will often have other people do his or her dirty work. How did Nancy figure in? Uh, well, like any criminal organization, um, the criminal activity is diffuse, which makes it hard to pinpoint, which is, I think, one of the factors in why this has taken decades to take down this group. Um, I think that initially Keith saw Nancy as a resource because she had done NLP training and Ericksonian training, I think Ericksonian training, uh, hypno hypnotic training. Um, so they developed the, the executive success curriculum together. He gave her a lot of power and then he took it away. And I think that's one of the things that he did is that he would build you up and tear you down. And I don't know who she was before, 
but I've heard other people say she was a good, decent human being. But who she's become today as a result of her interactions with Keith Raniere doesn't appear to be. And she has participated in the destruction based on the evidence that I've seen of many people's lives in a very sadistic way. And as a mother, I don't understand that she would have allowed both her daughters, Lauren and Michelle, from what I believe, to have been with Keith. Like, how could you hand over your two daughters to this man? And the fact that Lauren and Michelle are both in DOS, they're both in the slave group, according to other members. And the one thing I do know is I think that Nancy liked the cash cow of the system that they set up because she's probably one of the few at the top of the pyramid chain who is benefiting financially. I don't, I know she didn't know about DOS. I also believe that she was heard saying, this is going to destroy the company. And it's very interesting when you're dealing with somebody who has all the symptoms of a psychopath, like Keith Raniere, how there's this line bending that goes on. And each person within that hierarchy that you described is pushed to their limit. Like, how far is too far? And I think he did that to everybody. Because there was another high-level member who said, I think that the only way that he could do this is if he, he was hell-bent on destruction. And the fact that you've attached your life purpose to a man who's barreling off the edge of a cliff. How terrifying that must be. Terrifying. So yes, she's complicit, but I think she's indoctrinated herself to believe that what she's doing is the right thing. And I think that's what Keith did, is he line-bent with morality to the point that within his little world, his realm, it was all okay based on his rules and regulations that didn't apply to the outside world. And so they normalized. And when you do it incrementally, as have most of the people involved in this group who are involved at a deep level, it takes a while to be able to figure out where that line is, where your moral compass, how do you reclaim your moral compass when you're so far over the edge? You bring up such a good point about conscience, that when you're trying to find out if someone is a healthy person or not, very often that becomes the guideline. Are they people who behave without a conscience? Are they people who don't seem to be bothered by other people's pain? In fact, they promote it. And they also will enjoy it as a sign of allegiance to them. And if you are willing to endure pain, that means that you are devoted to that leader. What also happens, I've noticed, with dealing with a lot of people who have come out of cultic groups and also have, having met some cult leaders, Sometimes what they ask people to do is not even as meaningful as just the fact that the person will do it just because they were asked. So I think they give the action some sort of meaning, but really the meaning is that it feeds the leader's ego. And so then people are put in harm's way over and over again, and there is no um, remorse and there's no kindness around it. There is this support of people being in pain. I think also, you know, I can't speak for Nancy, but yes, she is a cog, right, in the wheel. She's part of the system. So she didn't create it. But just knowing that she was reduced, I think, to not being able to see or feel or experience the feelings that a mother would usually feel, knowing that her daughters were put in this situation, taking away their power. 
It was, I believe, as a way for her to show her allegiance, but also that there is this system of control and influence where once you say something and you say it definitively, you want to be able to back it up. And she became a spokesperson for so much of this. And then I think needed to have her behavior and what she would allow and what she was okay with fit with what she had already said. Like it has to kind of come together and make sense or you seem like a liar. I think everyone was put into this system run by this sociopath. It brings out the worst in everyone, really, as he's sort of enjoying every moment of it. And well, now no longer, which is quite an amazing thing. It's so interesting because one of the lawyers um, who was interviewed by Megan Kelly on the Dateline episode that was promoting um, the book. And he was saying, you know, this is not, a, you know, somebody who looks like, I'm paraphrasing him, a predator. He's soft. He's unassuming. He wouldn't hurt anybody. And you just think about, you know, the silver, silver tongue devil. But he doesn't come across as somebody that you would think would be so dangerous. And I think that again, I've heard somebody refer to him, a defector, as a Teddy Graham. Oh. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Maybe a poisonous Teddy Graham. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite incredible. Right. I mean, you look at pictures of him, you want to pinch his cheeks. Oh, a sweet man, right? Maybe you wouldn't want to pinch his cheeks. Not quite. <laughs> but he does look like he looks harmless. He does. And the group looks harmless. So it's this wolf in sheep's clothing that we want to pull the wool back from mm-hmm. and help people who could be susceptible. And that's another thing that you taught me is that everyone is susceptible at various points in their lives. There's no rule of thumb. Nobody is exempt. And I think we have a false sense of security because we're like, oh, that would never happen to me. Oh, I would never be that stupid to sign up for that. But they don't understand. Even though I wasn't necessarily sucked in by the cult, I've been conned in my life. Sure. Who who hasn't? Yeah. It's part of the human condition. And that's why there are so many people who do it because they know there is great potential. They're going to be able to get somebody, if not that person, then the next person. And also maybe not that person then, but that person a month from then when they're scared of something or they're ill for the first time or they've just incurred a loss or they're hoping to be able to achieve something in their life that's now on their radar, and this is a way to achieve it. So sometimes timing plays a big role. And do you think that that played a role in it for India, the timing? Yes, the timing was bizarre. Because when we went, when we went to the original intro, which was back in February of 2011, she was getting ready to start a business. So we signed up. And then in May, when we, when the class actually was, a week before the whole business concept fell apart. So nobody could have predicted that. Like the timing was hideously perfect you know <laughs> I don't know how else to put it uh, no, it's, it's tragic it is it is tragic tragically perfect right yeah it's the perfect storm it was the perfect storm yeah. exactly right and so then what people also want to know is let's say okay so here this guy who is this Teddy Graham sorry <laughs> oh, just knowing what you know about him it's hard to stomach that phrase but unassuming loving, etc. And also immediately, I think, played people off each other and caused people to be in competition with each other in a, in a very um, powerful way. He, he was an expert at setting up a competitive environment where people were all clamoring for his approval, for his love, for his acceptance, for his praise, for his attention. 
And so I think that that's also something that people might not notice about the hold that these groups have on people. But what do you think it was maybe even after, and I know she, you know, India's not here and actually it would be wonderful and exciting at some point if she were able to be here. I hope for that. But in lieu of her being able to answer the question, what do you think the hold was on her? Well, from my perspective, and I could be completely off, I've yet to really delve that deep with her. I think they exploited the most beautiful parts of her. Her desire to be a beautiful person in the world, her desire to help people and to make the world a better place. And they preyed on those qualities. Right. And that is something actually that I hear time and time again. And that is also why I get so angry and protective towards people who come out of these situations and are criticized and who are judged. Because it really is usually because of their wonderful qualities that they still have that someone zeroed in on and someone capitalized on and someone used for their benefit. When someone is open-minded, not a bad thing, right? Unless. They realize that about themselves, and that means that they need to then know what to watch out for and also how to just address asking the questions that you need to ask to find out what you need to find out about. Knowing also that the person who you're asking, if they're the leader of the group, are not going to answer those questions honestly, but it means asking people who have left the group to find out why they left. Do your research, right? It's, it's back to being a good spiritual consumer. Do your research. So do your research would have been very wise and something I regret deeply not having done with this group because it was a trusted friend who recruited me. So my defenses were down. Of course. And then it was a person who was giving the introduction who was well known in the outside world who had a career. Again, I let down my defenses. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that is also why... Cults have their followers do recruitment. They go to their families. They go to their friends. They will recruit people who feel that they have their best interest in mind. Why would they be lying to them? Why would they be trying to get them into something that's unhealthy? And it could also be that they didn't know at that time how unhealthy it was. I agree. And also, it would have been very hard to reach out to former members of ESP because people were terrified already because he had created an environment of such fear and condemnation going after defectors and critics, even people who left quietly, he'd come after them and destroy them within abusing the legal system to ruin people. I don't think anyone would have come forward. And, but there was nothing. If you look online, now that I looked on, you know, when I started to research, I saw that there was this Forbes uh, magazine article that was pretty damning. But I don't remember even reading it until after, you know, I made a, a point to start a deep dive. And beyond that, there was nobody talking, really. They were too afraid. And right. And it's also true that cults, sometimes when something negative has been printed about them, of course, they keep the people in the group from being able to access that information. And if they worry that people have accessed that information, they usually discredit the source of the information. I picture him like a little boy having a tantrum. And as he gets older and has the gift of gab and has this sort of charisma that I guess you and I don't see, <laughs> but others did in that situation also. But then he has learned other ways to have his tantrums by controlling people, by using the law, by using his kind of countless financial resources at the time to discredit people and harass them. And so if people know that what they're doing is really okay and other people criticize it, so other people criticize it. They don't have to go after them because they don't have to protect what they have here and keep people from being able to kind of hold a mirror up to it. Because as soon as you do that, you see what it really is. I think Keith 
didn't ever want that kind of reflection on him. My listeners talk to me a lot about caring about the tipping point. What was it? What was that point for you? And you do talk about this a little bit in the book, and I know from our conversations. But just to explain here, I know you you were concerned, you cared, you were longing to have that closeness back and wondering what was happening with your daughter. But what was the thing that got you to say, okay, I'm all in. I have to do something. No matter how it turns out, I have to do something. The tipping point was when this lady who was apparently a good friend of India's while she was in ESP came to me and said I had to save her. And I said, well, my understanding was that eventually she'd figure it out for herself and she'd leave. And she said, you don't understand. She went in so young and she was so impressionable that unless you do an intervention, I don't think she's going to come out. And then she started to tell me about DOS and what she believed my daughter was involved with, which was this dangerous, very secretive subgroup where they had these women on starvation diets so that they could fit a certain criteria to fit Keith's sexual preference, that they were being groomed to have sex with Keith, that they had signed lifetime vows of commitments to their master that was all predicated on a master-slave hierarchy, that they had to recruit slaves for themselves to bring them in, and that they had to give collateral in order to even gain admission to the group without even being told what the definition of the group was as an act of trust and also to maintain the secrecy of the group. And that collateral had to be ruinous if ever revealed about themselves or about their family members, true or untrue. So these confessions could be false, but as long as they could ruin somebody's life, that's the level of criteria that was required. And then once they were in, they were told, well, now you're going to have to provide collateral on a monthly basis. So the level of deception, and they were told it was a female empowerment group. So all but the first tier group of slaves who answered directly to Keith, none of them were told that there was a man at the top of this female empowerment group, which to me is sort of an oxymoron, sort of the antithesis of female empowerment with a man at the top who then requires you to call him master and you're his slave. So where is the female empowerment in that? I do not get it. That was the tipping point. And I hadn't even heard about the branding until I would say a month later. That was it. That was it. I'm like, well, I'm done. I'm done being the cool parent who's yeah. going to let her kid figure it out in this self-help group. I'm like, no, I'm done. Yeah. And then I was like turbocharged and I just kept going until I found a way. And when I, when I realized I wasn't going to be able to even make a dent in her kind of closed loop logic that she was locking, you know, that she was so under the influence of the doctrine of the group that I was completely out of my skill set. Mm-hmm. And then I went and, and I think I, I kind of mapped this out quite clearly in the book. I was like, my God, what are my resources? And I, then I went to law enforcement, got nowhere. Then I went to the press. When I failed with her and I failed with law, law enforcement, I, I mean, I, I didn't have anything left. And at first I was even trying to figure out how do I even broach the story to the media without even involving her? Because who wants to expose their daughter in this way? Certainly not me. So that was extremely painful. The New York Times broke the story and who took on the story was this Pulitzer winning journalist called Barry Meyer. Mm-hmm. So once he broke the story, and apparently there's only just a few journalists that law enforcement takes seriously, and he's one of them. And he skewed the way he wrote this article specifically to shame various branches of law enforcement. Why has nobody done that? Complaints have been have been handed in to various arms of the government for over for years. Nothing has happened. I swear to God, it must have been within 24 hours of, of the New York Times hitting the stands that Cuomo made a statement. But what I didn't know is that the FBI of the Eastern District were already taking a look. And I wasn't going to stop with the media until I got 
an answer. And at the same time, so I just kept going. And then I hit a wall after I did People and I did I did the Today Show with Megan and, you know, I did, every, I did, I did everything that I could to get my voice out there. And I basically said, I'm not going to stop until somebody stops this. Somebody must have had pity on me. <laughs> <laughs> they knew I would never shut up. <laughs> I got a call and I got word that um, somebody in Schneiderman's office was prepared to meet with me. Okay. So that was one thing that happened. And then I compiled. I was like, I got to give them a case. Because I'd also been consulting with various lawyers at this time to try and devise a strategy. Do we attack? You know, this is a group that attacks using the legal system. So do we do the preemptive strike? Do I... Congreg you know, do I bring together all these defectors? Do we try and mount a civil suit? And then I was, I was advised, no, criminal suit first. Because once you have arrests, then it's much easier to file a civil suit. So then I was like, how do I do a criminal suit? I have no idea. And then, so one of the lawyers said, well, it'll cost our firm about $50,000 to compile the evidence to hand to the government to pressure them to open up a case. So I'm like, I don't have $50,000 to do that. So then I was like, I'm going to have to do it myself. You didn't check in your magic purse? Yes, I looked at my mouth. Okay, where's that handy $50,000? So what happened was, is I was able to collect a lot of evidence from people who were scared to death. And literally at the 11th hour, the, the day before my meeting, it started to pour in evidence of financial crimes, of identity theft, of uh, what looked like bulk cash smuggling, their codes for cash that they were bringing across the border. Um, I mean, so much illegal activity or that I, I thought was, you know, looked like illegal activity because I'm thinking to myself, if I can't get my daughter out, how do I stop this group? Even though I'm being told it looks legal, I knew in my gut and call this a mother's primal instinct, I knew it could not be legal. And I wasn't going to stop until I found the chink in their armor. So I arrived to the government with this book that was, I don't know, 300 pages thick full of evidence. And I plonked it on the table in this room surrounded by these kind of beefy, solid policemen and investigators from various divisions. And I'm like, I opened up the book and there's this color picture of the brand. And I pointed, I pushed my chair back dramatically and I pointed to my crotch and I went, it's right here and it's happening in your own backyard and nobody has done anything about this. That was state government. That was Schneiderman's office. I left that meeting literally the next day. I got a call from some of my lawyers and they said the Eastern District of New York is moving in with the FBI very aggressively and they want you to know that you don't have to carry the burden of this on your shoulders alone anymore. Hmm. You have help. So it was their angels. There are angels in the system. Oh. What a moment that must have been for you where you could breathe a little bit. A tiny bit. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I didn't, haven't really breathed until probably the last couple of days. <laughs> Finally breathing. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> yes. I'm glad. Feels good, doesn't it? Yeah. <sighs> okay. So, my goodness. You know, you talk about also going back to it with India that she had this closed loop logic. You know, one of the things also that people don't realize is how much a cult leader can set things in motion and have the followers keep doing the programming for themselves. And so it's like they develop a system where they just have to press a button and everyone else continues to do the work. It's very similar to someone being in a relationship with someone who is abusive. They have been told this is for their benefit, or they've been told no one else will love them. This is the best they can do, or they deserve it. And a lot of time passes with people 
telling themselves those messages. And then with people outside saying, how come you haven't left? Well, they don't realize they're continuing doing the programming for themselves. So the closed loop logic that you were noticing with your daughter, I'm wondering what it was. What did you hear? I mean, there was there's some of it that you talk about in the book where, you know, being able to experience pain is somehow good. It's it's to build, you know, strength and character. So that's one of those ideas of that kind of thought stopping technique, the closed loop logic. What else did you notice in her or maybe still do? Because that takes a while actually to get rid of that. I think it was the emphasis on that what I was doing was so wrong. Oh, yes. I, I had ruined her life by exposing what was going on. That was the closed loop that I saw. And I couldn't get through to her that in fact... All I was doing was shining a light on something that preexisted that was very dark that needed to stop. Mm -hmm. So, and I think cults do that. They're, they deflect and it's a, a sort of a distraction technique so that you're hyper-focused on something else that you can't really see what's going on. And so the fight and the offense and the outrage was how could my mother do this to me as opposed to why do you think she's doing it? Right. I'll give you another example. So she said that many people felt that I was, you know, on the soapbox because I wanted attention. Oh, okay. And I thought about that and I could see how one could reduce my behavior to that. But I still felt the effects of being gaslit. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you can explain that a little bit because I felt my mind spin a little bit when she said that because I'm thinking, how can people reduce what I'm doing to somebody who's an attention seeker? Right. So I think that when you're in the public eye, you're unfortunately always going to have that level of suspicion paid to you. That if you get involved in a political cause or if you get involved in any kind of cause, if you want to make your feelings public about something, are you doing it for the right reasons or are you doing it for the wrong reasons? And are you kind of doing it in a suspicious way where it's for your own self-motivation or self-aggrandizement. I think that that is just the nature of the beast when it comes to people who are known in the world. At the same time, I think that there is this piece where I think one of the things that might have motivated you or made you feel like this is possible is because you might be someone who has a name that people recognize and a face that people recognize, and that might actually open some doors. And there might be a way, in a very wonderful way, to use the fact that you are known to have someone listen to you. Now, does that mean you were doing it for you? No. It just means that maybe you also knew the nature of the beast, and you knew that you could use that potentially maybe more than someone else who isn't known and might not have their calls returned from someone in the media. And why not do that? Because it's going to help you achieve a really wonderful goal. Well, I did know that I couldn't compete with the Bronfman's hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, true. So I had to choose my, you know, my weapons carefully because there were certain limitations and ultimately, what was so interesting is, so they had unlimited funds to fight me in the legal system, but I had lawyers step forward who represented me pro bono. So that completely nullified that, exactly. that leverage. And then I had the media, which they didn't have. So it was so strange from nothing and without a penny, mm -hmm. I was able to mobilize with help, obviously, 
an entire army that completely devastated them and they had no recourse. Mm-hmm. And but as a, what would if if India was your daughter and she said, you know, there are people who said you did this because you wanted attention for yourself. What would you have said to her? I'm curious. The piece of it that doesn't fit in my mind is this. And this is something you can say to her or anyone else. You didn't know how this story was going to play out. And you were willing to take the risk, to do education, to do prevention, to do what you could. I would have said instead that maybe you were trying to get publicity for yourself if you had waited until you had rescued your daughter and you could say, look what I did. Look what a a great mom I am and look what I achieved. You didn't know that was going to be part of this story. And so I think in the darkness of your worry and your sadness, you felt that you had to do something. That is not for personal gain. And it's for interpersonal gain. It's in the hope of getting your daughter back. I see it as a selfless gesture because in it also you take a lot of responsibility. The I should haves or the I could haves. Again, that you don't say those things. You don't admit those things. You don't reveal those things for personal gain. Thank you. That was very helpful. And I do have one other question because a philosophical argument has been to somebody like Keith who fits the bill of a sociopath or a psychopath. How do they think? How do they function? Do they know they're evil or do they think they're actually helping people? What goes on in in their minds? So there are different kinds of psychopaths and uh, pathological narcissists, and there's a lot of overlap. I think that they're very good at convincing themselves of their own mythology. So I think they believe that they have ultimate power. And I think that they know that if they tell someone to do something, that the person's going to do it. And they know how to use whatever charisma people see in them to get people to follow them like Pied Pipers. But I don't think that they feel that somehow this is all for other people's benefit. I think that they enjoy it too much. They don't sit there suffering. They live off of the riches. They live usually, people like Keith live very kind of fancy lives. If they were really there for other people only, their life would be very ascetic. It would be more of a kind of Siddhartha story of having nothing and nothing matters to you. Keith was not that guy. He also knew to engender closeness with people who could help pay his bills. And so then he also let people be attacked when they criticized. And he loved being able to use the law to attack people. That's someone who is not living in this very pure spiritual way. So I think that he really did believe about himself that he was superhuman. I think he also believed about himself that he was... Um, impervious, that he was kind of Teflon, that he could get away with things. And in part because he did for so long. And also in part because he knew the limitations of the law and that he couldn't be brought down for things. So I think after a while that builds more of a monster because you then behave in a much more entitled way. People who have this kind of pathology will sometimes go into helping people, not because they care about those people, but because they care about people feeling indebted to them. And so if they can get into their minds and control them, if they can see that show of allegiance over and over again, but also if they can 
convince that person that without them, they would be nothing. Then they become someone who other people are completely dependent upon. That means that they, people like Keith, can feel that they are the most important human being in other people's lives. And that feeds the ego. Again, it's not selfless. It's not caretaking. It's using self-help. It's using psychology. It's using kind of a show of care and kindness as a way to feed the ego. I think that's it. Do you think that somebody like Keith enjoys causing the suffering of others? Is that part of the program of somebody who's got that condition? I think that it is two things. One is that he might not enjoy the suffering, but he might enjoy knowing that people are willing to suffer for him or just because he said it. When somebody is that pathological in their way, the pleasure, I think, doesn't come from people's pain. It comes from knowing that people will cause themselves or others pain just because you said. It's in that affirmation of their importance, and it's in their affirmation of that kind of magical power, the spell that they have over people that is really the thing that gives them joy. I think I was referring to the fact that he would initiate with the Brompens and, and other high-level cult members, about 50 lawsuits against critics and defectors, and he wouldn't stop until they were ruined. Oh, right. Well, so that's, that type of suffering. Yeah, that's the, right. Okay, so not the physical suffering, but yeah, that's the narcissistic piece. Okay. So narcissists have this uh, part of the disorder which is called a narcissistic injury. And so it takes very little to cause them to feel injured. And it could even be that uh, you, if they say jump, you don't say how high, you say maybe later. That could be it. And so they will take that in as an emotional attack and they will feel injured and they will feel the need to attack you back, but tenfold because they cannot tolerate emotionally having it ever happen again. It destroys them in that moment. Not that they reveal it to anyone. It doesn't come out in a, ouch, that hurt. It comes out in a, how dare you? And then they will attack tenfold. And that's why people will suddenly feel slammed down in these groups and not know where that came from. And it could just be that your smile wasn't broad enough when you saw him and he took that as, as an attack, so he's going to attack you back. But if he can use the law and if he can use those resources to destroy people, that's him attacking people back and making sure they never try it again. That's him being that little boy saying, but I really wanted that toy. And you said, no. So I'm going to break it. And I'm going to break it. And I'm going to break every toy in the store. So I want to be able to ask you as we're kind of wrapping things up, if there are some parts of the story that you wanted to be able to tell or a story that didn't quite make it into the book that you wanted to be able to tell and also a message that you might have for other parents, even though every situation is different. And I know you know that and I know that. And so there isn't advice you can give everyone, but just the message that you might have for how to approach this if their child is in a certain situation and what you're going to have a lot of sensitivity to about how hard it is. So if there's a story that you wanted to mention, could be a happy story, a not-so-happy story, and then a message for other parents. Well, actually, it's interesting, um, messages for other parents, because I have been deluged with desperate family members from different situations, young women who are in abusive 
relationships, other people who are, have been, you know, captured into cults or whatever. But a lot of parents have reached out to me saying, help, can you help us? And I, I, I don't know what to do because I, I want to, be, I wish I had the resources and I wish I could say, okay, you call this person. Okay. You can get help in this way. So I, I have yet to develop a structure that I can help. And as my 16 year old said, mom, you just need to take some time off first. <laughs> I don't know how that's going to happen, <laughs> but if, it, if I can keep it simple, I think the message is don't ever give up. Don't ever take no for an answer and be prepared for your child not to like you in order to do the right thing, that your responsibility as a parent means that you are primarily, you are here to make sure they're safe and protected. And India didn't like me for a period of time, but I knew that my love for her was more important than her liking me back while I was trying to protect her from spending the rest of her life in this environment. And if I hadn't have stepped in when I stepped in, she could so easily be sitting where Alison Mack is right now, facing a life sentence in jail. That's how close we were. That's how frightening this is. So don't take no for an answer and don't give up. And whatever the realm is that your child or your loved one is endangered, educate yourself. I think that if I had just taken steps without understanding the dynamics of the structure that was, that was holding her captive, that I, I would have failed. Mm-hmm. But I had to deeply, deeply understand what it was that sucked her in and how. And that gave me, that gave me a leg up. That empowered me. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful message. I think it's incredibly powerful, the don't take no for an answer, and, and not to worry if your child is upset with you along the way. We were talking before about people like Keith Ranieri and what his motivation is, and, and I want to add to what I was saying about how there are some sociopaths who do enjoy people's pain. I, I just don't know if that was it for him, but I do think there are people who really do enjoy it, and they get off on it, unfortunately. But I think what he was getting off on was having people go through pain and then he could be there for them during that painful time and to help them feel that he was caring for them and to be that father figure, even though he was a lover to them, but still that father figure. And then we were talking about a loop. That's the loop also that I think people don't realize when they're in these situations that it's the situation that's causing their pain. And then the person there is going to help them through that moment. But that moment was caused by the organization. So what you say by jumping in is you say, no, you, Keith, to the best of my ability, no longer get to be this person who is orchestrating my daughter's pain and then being there to help her through her pain. I see what you're doing. I've put together and kind of made a link between the dots and the patterns. And I want to be able to show my daughter that and be able to bring her back into a realm with people who will be there for her pain, but not be the ones to cause it. And so it's a beautiful moment for you to have her back. And I know there is a lot of work still to be done, but she is safe. That's a gift beyond any other kind of gift. So thank you for your time today. And thank you. And and it's so exciting. It's just really exciting (laughs) (laughs) that she's home and she's, you know, she's getting a chance to start anew. And that's a wonderful thing. So bravo to you, really. Thank you so much for all your help. Truly. I couldn't have done this without you. (laughs) Anytime. And I hope never again. Yes. Anytime. Me too. (laughs) Okay. Good to talk to you, Catherine. Thank you, Rachel. Okay. Take care. You too. You too. 
Speaking to Catherine Oxenberg reminds me about the complexity of being a parent. When kids are young, there's the potential for there to be joy and playfulness, kind of a happy chaos, which can at times be overwhelming in its own right. That makes me think about a quote from a long time ago by Irma Bombeck. She wrote when she was a young mother that, when my kids become unruly, I use a nice, safe playpen. And when they're finished, I climb out. As kids grow up and become more independent in the world, we hope they will be all right, but on some occasions, they get ensnared in something that takes them away from their families and takes over their lives. Often this kind of situation will lead the kids back into a very adolescent mindset and adolescent behavior where they cannot handle being questioned, having their beliefs questioned, or the person they are misguidedly trusting now in their lives questioned. This doesn't just happen to adult children, by the way. I've also seen this shift happen to people's partners and, in some cases, to people's parents who have suddenly gotten caught up in a new group and are following someone who is now calling the shots in every facet of their life. This kind of adolescence shows itself in a couple of ways. Just as adolescents are in this liminal space between being dependent and independent, they either don't know or don't want to see how much they're being mistreated, exploited, manipulated, or strung along. They're trying to be independent and independent from anyone controlling them, and they can't see that the person who they believe in is actually taking them away from their freedom, not giving them their freedom. They may say things when you're critical of their new partner or their new organization or their new spiritual guru like, I have the right to make my own decisions, as though they were really only making their own decisions here. Or you just don't understand or why are you always so negative and why can't you accept my decisions or why don't you trust me to be able to figure this out on my own or this kind of dramatic nugget, why don't you want me to be happy? Catherine talked about her daughter having this closed-loop logic also, and truthfully, we've all had this experience of expressing ourselves with this closed-loop logic. At different times in our lives, when we didn't want to be talked out of something, but we weren't quite sure that we knew what the something fully was yet, or even if it was a good idea, we could hear ourselves talking and trying to explain why something was potentially a good idea, but also hearing that we were not quite coming together logically in our words, and as the words are tumbling out of our mouths, and we're met with that kind of quizzical and doubting look from the person we're talking to, we might feel we need to get more exasperated, more dramatic, just to kind of make the conversation too unpleasant for the other person to want to continue it. This response, though, just so we understand it, comes out of fear. It's you saying you're not quite ready to make a change. It's you saying that no matter how many unspoken and unshared internal doubts you're already having, mm, you're not sure that you want to say goodbye to this and the promise of what it's supposed to give you. And also, it could be that you've had tension with the person you're talking to in this conversation, and you don't want to give them the satisfaction of being right, at least not yet. So this message is for those on both the delivering end and the receiving end of these interactions. If you hear yourself not making sense when you're trying to explain or justify what you're doing and you don't have enough proof that it's a good idea, it could be because it's not. And it could be that you're not really as happy as you think you are. And it could be that you need to look at this more closely. You don't have to admit it to the other person yet if you're not ready, but at least admit it to yourself. It's a place to start. And if someone who cares about you leans in and digs their heels in because they can sense something is off, they can tell you're not as happy as you seem or you try to convince them you are. It's because it's their right and sometimes their job 
to help you evaluate this. Their conscience can't let them ignore that something is wrong. They feel like they need to take action, and sometimes they do, sometimes smoothly and sometimes clumsily, but it's because they love you, and they're concerned, and they don't know what to do. And they hope that some of their efforts might succeed, but there's also the chance that all their efforts will fail, but they still try. So, while I started this with a quote from Irma Bombeck, I'll end with a quote from Anne Lamott. For the people out there who care about someone and are concerned about that person, hope begins in the dark. The stubborn hope that if you just show up and try to do the right thing, the dawn will come. You wait and watch and work. You don't give up. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Rachel.